Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and colleague and comrade Derek Davison. And we are very excited to be joined by my old friend, someone who I believe I met over a decade ago, Matthew Spector. Uh, Matthew is a great historian. Uh, he's also a senior fellow at the Institute for European Studies at UC Berkeley, as well as a lecturer in the history department at Santa Clara University. And he's author of a great first book on Habermas, but we're actually here today to discuss his new and most recent and path-breaking book titled The Atlantic Realists, Empire and International Political Thought Between Germany and the United States. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm a fan of the show. Thank you. First time, long time. We, Derek, we finally got a first time, long time. That's, uh, <laughs> that's how you know you've, you've made it. Uh, so Matthew, uh, why don't we just dive into it? And why don't we start at the beginning? Because your, your book is what is called a revisionist history for people who might not know, which is that you're, you're really reviving the history of realism. So just to give people a little bit of a background, in the last 10, 10 or so years, there's been an explosion of literature on the history of an IR field that is called realism. Um, we'll, we'll get into what that refers to, but just to give a sense of the context, realism is, I would say, the most dominant form of thinking in the subdiscipline of international relations, and it's a subdiscipline of political science. And many of the most famous IR scholars that you've heard of, someone like John Mersheimer, who's recently been making a lot of news with regards to Ukraine, or even Stephen Walt, who co-wrote a book with Mersheimer about uh, the Israel lobby, um, th those people are all realists. So this is really the dominant strand of thinking. And in recent years, um, historians have essentially traced this form of thinking to uh, the generation of European exiles, particularly German exiles, who left Germany in the wake of Hitler's rise, settled in the United States, and helped develop the theory of international relations that we call realism. But what Matthew is doing in this book is revising that history. So Matthew, maybe you could just tell me if you think my characterization of the literature was correct, why you wanted to write this book, and all that good stuff. Yeah, great, great question. So I have been deeply influenced by and, and, and mostly convinced by this wonderful body of historiography, including your own work, Danny, but also uh, that of Nicola Guillot. I would include Marty Koskanini's The Gentle Civilizer, which, which traces out, you know, Hans Morgenthau's uh, emigre uh, formation. And um, so I, I've learned a great deal at Udi Greenberg's uh, Weimar Century. So I, I, I've learned a great deal from this, and I, I do find it um, convincing. Um, and it's it, and it's a huge advance on what what preceded it, which was the notion that realism did not have a history at all; that it was a kind of timeless set of timeless truths. So the, the historiography was a, uh, a huge advance on what came before, which was the notion that realism didn't really have a history. It was timeless. It was a set of timeless, timeless truths about the perennial, perennially tragic and anarchic nature of international affairs. So I've learned a great deal from that, what I would call the sea change literature or the notion that American strategic thought was Germanized or was deeply influenced by the crisis of 
mid 20th century liberalism, fascism, and so forth. But what happened quite accidentally in my, I mean, my, my project was initially framed as a kind of 1930 to 1960 story with, uh, with Carl Schmidt, Hans Morgenthau, and Wilhelm Greve, who was the, um, West German ambassador under Kennedy and a very important diplomat and, and, and historian of international law. So I started with those three figures. And what I found was that in order to really understand, um, uh, Carl Schmidt on Großraum, uh, or greater spaces or this kind of regional hegemony idea, I had to go back to the 19th century. I had to, I had to educate myself about the history of the Monroe Doctrine. And I also was struck by the fact that the historiography of classical geopolitics of the generation of Mahan and Mackinder, no one had ever built a bridge from that fin de siècle era of what's called classical geopolitics to the realists. And in a, you know, in a, in a book by like David Milne's world making, he describes, uh, Mahan as a proto realist. And so I started to think, well, you know, is it really proto realism or maybe, you know, or, or is maybe the, you know, can we push the origin back further in time? And so, as I said, I didn't begin with an agenda to, to, to relocate it in the 1890s. I just followed the trail. And what I found was that in order to understand Schmidt on Grossraum, where he's writing in the, in the late 1930s and proposing a Germanic Monroe doctrine, you know, for sort of an ideological kind of rationalization of, of, of Nazi hegemony in Europe, um, I had to understand Lebensraum because while Schmidt argued that uh, Grossraum had nothing to do with Lebensraum, that Grossraum was a scientific and scholarly concept to, which we might well apply to the EU or, or, or something like this, um, that, that Lebensraum was the kind of the idea of the SS and, and sort of the, the kind of biopolitical idea that space needed to be cleared and colonized and, uh, people, Jews exterminated. So I found that in order to understand Schmidt properly, I had to understand Lebensraum. And to understand Lebensraum meant going back to Friedrich Ratzel, the, the geographer of the turn of the century who, who coined the term in 1900. And I also then discovered that the term geopolitics was coined uh, by a Swedish um, uh, thinker, Rudolf Schelling, Schelling uh, in 1899. And so that's what kind of drew my attention to, to the 1890s. So why don't we, you know, we're both intellectual historians. What was the problem situation that these people in the late uh, 19th century were confronting? Particularly because I think there's been a lot of scholarship in the last um, decade or so, basically trying to argue that one of the real geopolitical competitions of the turn of the 20th century was not just between Germany and the UK, but was between Germany and the United States. So someone like Dirk Bonker, a Dirk Bunker, writes about that in his book, um, especially, and, and you write about that here as well. So could you maybe talk about this age of empires in which these people first developed the concepts that, that would really reach their, I, I think, fruition um, in the post-World War II period? Yeah, great question. Um, I recognize, since we both had the same Dr. Fata, uh, the, the, the idea of the Problemstellung or the problem situation as, 
that when you want to understand uh, a thinker that you you look to the sort of intellectual context and try and figure out uh, what kinds of questions they were trying to to, to answer. So I, I, I call this moment of the fin de siècle the first Atlantic realist moment. And I think what the first, this first generation of Atlantic realists, in which I include uh, Mahan and Ratzel, but also um, the political scientist Paul Reinch, who was the um, was at Wisconsin and who uh, had 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 taught in Berlin in the in the eighteen nineties, I think what this first generation was trying to do was theorize the nature of great power in an age of uh, globalization. And what what Ratzel and Reinch and um, Max Weber and Mahan all arrived at was that it was no longer sufficient to be an inward-looking continental power or hemispheric power. You know, what Mahan was theorizing was he became very obsessed with the the Panamanian isthmus and the passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And it was sort of beginning to theorize, you know, America's uh, Pacific interests. And uh, he calls the Caribbean the nerve center of the world. Uh, so it's, I think the problem situation is rising regional powers, the U.S. and Germany, trying to catch up with and overthrow the dominant naval power, which is Great Britain, but also to, in an era in which global space is beginning to contract, there's a sense of a closing global frontier, analogous to Frederick Turner's idea of a closing frontier in the United States. Uh, there's a sense of scarcity and scarcity uh, of space for colonies uh, drives the scramble for Africa, but it also in the U.S. German context leads to some rivalries and some military uh, maneuvering. And the, the problem situation for those intellectuals is, I would say, how to become a competitive empire in a, in a modern age of globalization and Relatedly, how to think about what it means to be a world power as opposed to a regional uh, power. And so for me, realism is, this, is, is, is the, the learning how uh, to be a world power and how, how one comports oneself on the world stage and how one sees like an empire uh, with a global uh, perspective, not just a regional one. So that's really interesting because what you're arguing is essentially that from the beginning, realism is inevitably attached to empire um, in, a, in a very definitional way. So could you maybe talk about the term itself? Were these people using this term? What does it mean to be a realist? Um, and beyond that, what are some of the foundational concepts that you see them developing um, at the turn of the 20th century that, that still define the way we think about international relations? Right. So from a sort of strict nominalist conceptual history perspective, I think the earliest occurrence of the term realism in international affairs, uh, it has been dated by Robert Vitalis in the early, very early 1930s, though before, actually before Hitler. So there's a kind of discursive consolidation of what that term means. I would, I would pinpoint E.H. Carr's 20 years crisis as an important moment. 
Um, and then really, I think this is Morgenthau's most important contribution is really to define realism um, for an American audience in his writings from 1946 uh, through to the end of the 1950s. And this is why I kind of consider Morgenthau responsible for the making of uh, what I call an American orthodoxy of, of, of power politics. So if the concept itself doesn't exist till 1930, why make the argument that its fundaments can be located uh, 40 years earlier? My premise is that geopolitics is central to realism. I think not all geopoliticians are realists and not all realists are geopoliticians, but there's a very strong Venn diagram. And many of the post-war realists, I'm thinking of people like Arnold Wolfers or Nicholas Spickman, I think definitely belong to an intellectual genealogy that goes back to people like Haushofer and Ratzel and, and, and so forth. So geopolitics is one of the concepts that that I think has a longer history than the 1930s. Another would be the national interest. What fascinated me most about Mahan, I mean, I've always been on the trail for the national interest. This is the concept I first encountered as an undergraduate at Harvard in a seminar on ethics and foreign policy with Joseph Nye. And I was very troubled by the notion of the national interest because while ethical considerations were considered supplementary uh, or optional, the national interest was seen as something objective and fixed and rational that could be determined by uh, correct study. And without having the tools of critical theory at, at my disposal yet, I began to suspect that this concept of national interest was ideological, that it was a myth, and that it it didn't explain who got to decide and by what values interests are guided and 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 determined. Right. Basically it it, it black boxes politics in a way to for like a mechanistic understanding of IR. And I think that totally infuses everything we do. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but no, not at all. And I underline that point. No, and I and I've 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 taken a page from your work on Spire, and which highlights the undemocratic, technocratic aspects of uh, of realism and the Cold War national security state. <clears throat> so, coming from a kind of Habermasian place of interest in democratic deliberation, I find the idea that the national interest insulated from the demos and not debated, but simply stipulated to be very problematic. So I believe that the origins of the concept of the national interest as the lodestar of foreign policy can be found in Mahan's writings on vital interests. And I was absolutely fascinated by Mahan's writing because it seems to me that these are seminal experiments in writing and conceptual deployment that have become routinized and sedimented into our intellectual traditions and our, our sort of our political toolkits. You know, Blinken says, you know, national interests, that's what it's all about. You know, that he's he's a product of a century of socialization in in a tradition in, in in a tradition, whether he knows it or not. 
So, 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 so in terms of foundational concepts of the 1890s that carry over, I would say geopolitics, I would say the national interest, concepts of vital interest. And then finally, I think some kind of metaphysics of power or some, some sort of notion of the international realm as a, 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 a ontologically anarchic and characterized by a struggle for power that can never quite be mastered by reason. So I know Derek has a question, but I have a direct follow-up to this, Matthew, very quickly. So then a lot of the argument that someone like myself or, or Nicolagio or uh, Udi has made is that uh, realism is a response to the 1930, the failure of politics in the 1930s. But you're saying that a lot of the, these almost ontological assumptions about anarchy and whatnot could be traced all the way to the 1890s. So we have a very clear explanation. You know, uh, Hitler arises, there's a German expansion, then you get realism in, in some form of reaction to that. Why did these people come to these conclusions? Like the, the sort of like the ontological nature of anarchy and things along those lines. I think that social Darwinism is an important part of the intellectual tapestry or, or fabric from which realism is woven. Um, notions of vitalism, which I think you can detect in the language of vital interests and a kind of sense that uh, Mahan describes the Monroe Doctrine as something organic and growing and that can't, uh, that, 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 that the interests of em empires are growing organisms and they cannot be caged within rules and 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 laws and the liberal framework. I mean this is very clear in 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 Mahan's writings before World War One. And so I think that the kind of infrastructure of that critique of liberalism is already there. And I one of the phrases that I point to in the writings of the period is that empires are in the nature of things, that it is simply in the nature of things that empire and power should function this way. And so I see that kind of naturalization of empire, that naturalization of a contingent moment in history as one of the foundational errors of realism that carries over to our own time where we believe that we are with, with the, the, the crisis of the liberal order today must mean the return of great power competition and the eternal return of the same. Matthew, I, I want to say, I think, first of all, this is an extraordinarily timely book because it feels like we're having this debate. Uh, you know, every 10 or 15 years, we go from the, the idealism of the post-Cold War period to the realism that kind of resurged after Iraq. And now it feels like Ukraine is sort of bringing everybody back to the table to argue these same things. Uh, so I think I think it's a really timely book to, to, to be coming out and, and for people to read uh, right now if they're interested in these sort of things. I wanted to press a little bit or to, to kind of extend a little bit on this uh, idea of the connection between realism and empire and specifically U.S. empire. Uh, you talk in the book about, you know, sort of realism's emergence as the dominant sort of international relations 
kind of framework in the post-World War II period. Uh, you know, German scholars who came to the United States regarded almost as like eyewitnesses to the collapse of liberalism or to the crisis of liberalism. And, uh, you know, the, that's why their, their work was given so much kind of import. This seems to dovetail very well to me, at least, with something that we've talked about on this program in past interviews, which is the reluctant empire, the idea that that the United States just sort of assumed the mantle of world leadership after World War II because, you know, gosh, there was no other choice. We had to, and, you know, we had to emerge from the carnage as, uh, you know, shepherding the world through through this crisis. Contrasting that and sort of the way that that that, that rewrites things that happened in the 19th century that were very, you know, overtly imperialist, where something like the Monroe Doctrine, which to me is an overtly imperialist statement, gets rewritten as like anti-imperialist almost. Um, and we ignore the, these periods in the the late 19th century where the United States was kind of actively pursuing empire and to situate I think the um, the origins of realism back in that period uh, gets at this connection that that I'm sort of seeing and I wonder if if that's a, a parallel you saw as well as you were doing the the, the research for the book or uh, you know if it's if it's something that's coincidental or if there's a real kind of linkage there. Oh, I don't think it's coincidental at all. I mean, what you're saying is very much in the spirit of what I'm trying to do. Charles Mayer has this concept of moral narratives that are often out of sync with the real temporality of history. And I think the the notion that 1945 is this clean break and the beginning of American empire, well, that we, anyone who's studied American history knows that's not the case. We 1898 is a watershed. That's another reason I go back to the 1890s. And certainly the Monroe Doctrine is, is a touch point as well. So one of the things that I take up in the book is, is this, this false sense of novelty in the 1940s and this kind of deliberate historical amnesia. Because what Morgenthau and the others are saying is, hitherto, until we, the wise old world savant, arrived, you were a bunch of liberal hippie idealists, and uh, you know you need you need us to to teach you the ways of of realpolitik and power politics, and that was that 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 narrative is both self serving of the realists, but it's also reassure it's also reassuring to the self image of Wilsonian liberal internationalists. It's flattering to liberalism to believe that it uh, was truly idealistic when we know better from all kinds of great historiography that the the Wilsonian moment is 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 embedded in uh, racialized global hierarchy and 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 his own commitments to to white supremacy so the moral narratives of IR typically suggests that IR emerges at Aberystwyth in England in 1919. It's a future-oriented science of peace, and it downplays its investments in the management of colonialism and empire that scholars like Vitalis and David Long and Brian Schmidt have brought out so well uh, prior to 1919. And I'm arguing that this narrative that the U.S. emerges as a reluctant empire, uh, Derek, in your words, only in the 1940s, obscures the 
centrality of America and England to interwar discourses of geopolitics and empire that were shared by the Germans and the Americans. And there's this kind of fundamental misrecognition, this very funny misrecognition that takes place when uh, Reader's Digest is running stories. There's a kind of moral panic about geopolitics in the 1940s. And there's, they fantasize that, uh, you know, geopolitics is a, is a Nazi super weapon. And it, it, you know it's 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 a buzzword that 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 is frightening and 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 uh, exotic. And in fact, America had always been geopolitical, and it it simply misrecognized that. And I think the realists' narrative has, ironically, reinforced the the liberal view of a kind of innocence of American history prior to its so-called imperial turn in the forties. One of the ways uh, this manifests, and you, you talk about it in the book, is r- realists in the the fifties had the the luxury almost of kind of writing their own bibliography in a sense, and sort of pointing back to ancient Greece to create this idea of you know like we're all we're what we're so- talking about is rooted in Thucydides. It's been this way for the you know thousands of years. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, sort of the development of the the idea of realism is this like timeless uh, truth, and and how conscious that that process was, and and just to piggyback exactly on that, the ideological function of that. Yeah, so certainly the ideological function of that is to kind of deprovincialize, to universalize what I'm calling a provincial North Atlantic tradition, is to kind of embed it in some kind of universally relevant rise of Western civilization on a global scale story. So it's not only in IR, but in, in lots of fields that, you know, antiquity will, will see, serve as a kind of cultural capital that anchors, you know, to anchor uh, a, a new tradition. And as historians have shown, Machiavelli was never considered a realist uh, prior to Felix Gilbert and other uh, 1940s era uh, realists making him so. And, you know, specialists on Thucydides and specialists on other thinkers who are routinely adduced to the, 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 the timeless, unchanging realist canon will point out that, you know, Thucydides did not live in a nation state. He lived in a polis, right? And we can't simply assume that the Melian dialogue can be airlifted into the present without distorting its original meaning. But Danny, maybe you could help me with this particular question because I'm wondering which authors you, and I asked Nicolas and he didn't know, or he couldn't recall, which authors were most responsible for assembling that backstory about uh, that, I don't know. I feel like Nicola would know the best because of his work on Gilbert and Machiavelli. My guess right. is that it must be a, a, a connected to curricular innovation in the 1940s and 1950s, and, and probably thinking of Mortimer Adler in the University of Chicago and the fact that Morgenthau was there. Maybe it's also connected to this great books idea and things along those lines. But I don't know the history of it. Uh, I don't. I don't know yeah. uh, how they explicitly constructed this canon, which today still operates. Like if you get an IR degree, you start with uh, Thucydides. Right. 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 Yeah. No. I'm. I'm. I'm 
trying to figure that out. And I, I think it may have something to do with Kenneth, Kenneth Waltz. I, I'm not, I'm not certain, but you know, I can definitely see Morgenthau. I mean, Morgenthau is also constructing an intellectual genealogy. And I do show that in, 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 in scientific man versus power politics, he does sort of have a cast of characters who are the bad guys. And then the sort of the good guys who anticipate the present. So that would be one place. And then one other text I would mention is Edward Earle's makers of modern strategy book Mm -hmm. from 1943 is, is the sort of beginning of an attempt to construct a tradition to serve, to serve, to, to serve the new American empire the new scale of the American empire. So that one, one thing that I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned earlier was the connection between liberal internationalism and realism and, and um, your, your contention that they ultimately have similar origins, because I think is this is a debate that is constructed in IR, you know, between realism and they would call it idealism, but you know, I think liberal internationalism would be a form of that. So how do liberal internationalism and realism, First of all, maybe you could just describe in brief uh, what liberal internationalism in it is, and how does it share premises with realism? Well, I think if we allow that Woodrow Wilson might be called a liberal internationalist, I mean, I don't think the term existed at the time, so it might be slight anachronism. But if if, if there's a Wilsonian tradition of liberal internationalism, I think it's quite clear of his investments in empire and hierarchy and in America's status as a, as, as a world power. Uh, but more to the point, more to the present, I think that while the, the contemporary debate is framed as one, as I've learned from your show and from your wonderful, wonderful interview with Emma Ashford on the blob, I understand that there's a widespread revolt against the hubris and the costs of liberal internationalism in the last 20th century and and realism has gotten a uh looks very attractive as a counterweight and alternative to that tradition and therefore on that reading realism liberal internationalists are the imperialists and the realists are the anti-imperialists and and in that sense my my book and my argument are very untimely uh, because I'm, 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 because I'm, I'm not at all convinced that the realism of restraint does enough to dismantle empire. And I think, Danny, you, you may agree with me about that, the, the, that in some respects, the military industrial complex remains sort of unchallenged by yeah, that. It doesn't challenge the state. And, and, and that's particularly crucial. It, it, it basically, like you said, and this is why your book is so interesting, it, it, by by revealing its geopolitical origins, you just see like realism is so focused on like the world as a system that it ignores, I think, the very things that make international relations possible, which is politics, which is things that happen within a nation-state formation. Exactly. So while it may be untimely to say that realism is 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 in has has empire in its dna and and cannot be a major resource for an anti-imperial project i think that the america is the indispensable nation and the notion advanced by many realists that putin has a certain 
Putin has a great, a certain prerogative as great power to determine what is in his vital interest. And there's very little that the world community can do about that because we need to defer to, uh, the nature of things, the nature of, and, and, and so I, so I see a commonality between deference to empire in realism and service to empire in liberal internationalism. I see them as kind of two faces of the same Euro-Atlantic tradition. And if we want to move to beyond American hegemony into a more pluralistic model of world order, a more democratic and just world order, I, I'm not, I, 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 I think restraint is called for and restraint is better than neoconservatism or, or, or <laughs> liberal, liberal adventurism or costly wars or what have you. But I think it's, it's not normatively adequate to, you know, to guide us to a better place. It kind of just accepts the status quo. Yeah, as inevitable. And, and that's that tragic nature of realism. I mean, I, I do find realism compelling in certain regards. I think like the highlighting of international anarchy is really crucial. I think it's crucial to understand how states have historically acted in the world. But it's just a paucity of political imagination, which I basically have attributed to it being informed politically by the crises of the 1930s, which I still do think is probably 50% of the equation. But I think what your book shows is the other 50% of the equation, which is that these fundamental concepts forged in the late 19th century really assume certain things, certain eternal things about international politics that that aren't necessarily true because nothing like that is eternal. It's not in the quote unquote nature of things or human nature or international anarchy or however realists um, try to define it. Um, so, and, and as we as we approach the end here, I want to spend a few minutes actually talking about Hans Morgenthau, who is some someone that we've we've gestured to on the show um, that we've um, talked maybe a little bit about, but but I think he's really really the titanic figure of 20th century international relations thought, not only in the United States, but elsewhere as well. Uh, I think his works have been translated into, you know, basically uh, many languages and people read him around the world. And he's really influential in shaping, Matthew, I think what you're referring to as what people think are the nature, is the nature of things. So who was Hans Morgenthau? Why is he so crucial in the history of realism? I think Morgenthau is crucial for a number of reasons. He was in the right place at the right time. The, the American uh, empire was looking for uh, a compass and a kind of philosophy of history, a logic of that would authorize interventionism, that would authorize containment, that would convince a pub, an American public which had been very isolationist and, you know, America first and all of that. The America first committee was a, a, one of the largest anti-war movements in American history with 800,000 members. So Morgenthau was an important person in reorienting United States from a continental posture to a global posture. He was able to do that in part because he was a very good writer, a very pithy writer. And I also argue that Hans Morgenthau not only defined realism, but performed it in his person, that he was really a charismatic figure who, you know, had a persona and a certain gravitas that, 
you know, has been caricatured in Dr. Strangelove and, and the sort of the kiss, you know, the sort of the, the figure of Kissinger as kind of the old world knowledge that is brought to, to guide the, the, the new, the pupil. But I think Morgenthau was also effective for a reason I'm more critical of, which is that there's a lot of equivocation in Morgenthau and there are sort of many faces of Morgenthau. And so when I tend to emphasize the power political side of Morgenthau, it's very easy to push back and say, yes, but he was a deeply ethical thinker. He was... He wanted the world state. That's what people have been going to. He you wanted know. the world state. He, um, you know, he, he, he has quite a bit to say about Judeo-Christian tradition. And, you know, Udi Greenberg makes a good case that he's, he's, it's a kind of ethical realism. And I, I, there's plenty of textual support for that. But I, to, to your point, I think what makes him successful is that in a way he is all things to all people. Right. Right. That book is gigantic. My students read it this quarter and it's just like, it says kind of everything, (laughs) you know, the book we're talking about is politics among nations, which is this classic 1948 book, which changes someone still, I can't, this is like sitting on the table. Someone should just trace the additions because it changes so much over the course. That's an article that is sitting on the table. It changes very much between 1948 and the various editions that come after, but it's this very influential book, very long, talks about everything and kind of says everything. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, so, so Morgenthau is able to, he's not only capable of pithy formulation and definitions, but he's also a public intellectual. He's right. He's lecturing at the army war college. He's sort of all over the place. He's, He's a consultant to the State Department. He's close with Kennan. He's close with Niebuhr. So he's part of the intellectual zeitgeist of Cold War America and is able to have a a broad impact as a result. But Matthew, why don't we end on this question? Because (laughs) every time I've asked a realist about what they think about U.S. foreign policy, they're like, U.S. foreign policy isn't realist. It's it's profoundly idealist or it's profoundly something else, but it's certainly not realist. But you're making a case, I think, for it influencing policy in like a a semi-direct way, maybe not, you know, policy X could be linked to realist thought Y. But I was wondering if you could, could make your case that you make in the book is for how realism came to actually shape how the U.S. does business in the world. Well, it's a great point, and it's one I thought about a lot. To what extent realism dominated U.S. foreign policy in the Cold War and since, and to what extent it was a a dissenting or marginal oppositional ideology. But I can tell you from my lived experience of the late Cold War that the debates in the 1980s about what the U.S. should do in Nicaragua, El Salvador, South Africa, and the kinds of decisions that Kissinger was making in Indonesia and Pakistan and elsewhere, that realism, you know, was not always in the driver's seat, but it was, but, but, but Kissinger had a big impact. And I think- So you accept Kissinger as realist because there has been like claims. Okay. Because like uh, Neil Ferguson says he's an idealist. Mario Del Perro calls him the eccentric, the eccentric realist. realist. Yeah, yeah. But okay, yeah, no, I that's, mean, that's important. I mean, I'm not a, a, a Kissinger expert, but I think that that Kissinger would be one exhibit, but not 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 the only exhibit in that argument that realism has had a major shaping interest on foreign policy. I think more significant is the Morgenthauvian 
impact of sort of enshrining the national interest as the rational core of U.S. foreign policy and anything that was extra ex- external to that was enduringly denigrated as emotional, moral, or otherwise optional. And I think that kind of the centrality of the, of, of the nation state and the notion that interdependence or international institutions are secondary, are less real, are less compelling is a line that, 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 that continues in the neoconservatives. So, you know, the, a Condoleezza Rice or the, the, the neo, well, she was a realist, but the, the, the Bush circles, the John Boltons of the world, there's a lot of continuity between realism and neoconservatism, including, uh, the Schmittian, uh, element of the friend enemy distinction. Yeah, and there's a tragic element as well, I think, particularly as neoconservatism has failed again and again. It's funny, they're all becoming like tragic theologians in their later life. Uh, well, uh, Matthew Matthew Spector, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, run out to your nearest independent bookstore and buy The Atlantic Realists. Matthew, we really appreciated having you on the pod, and we look forward to welcoming you back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Derek. Big, big fan of the show. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> actual friend of the show. This is actually yeah, our, fr- uh, our friend of the show, right? Well, I'm, I'm Icelandic, you know. So 